Hello, and welcome to Forensics Faces. I'm Kurt Graves, your host and head coach from Sheboygan North High School. This week, we're talking to Mary Wacker, the head coach from Brookfield East High School. I've known Mary's name since I was a competitor in high school, but what I didn't learn until this summer is that Mary, like me, is an out-of-the-building coach, meaning she isn't a teacher at the school where she coaches forensics. That blew my mind, and I immediately wanted to sit her down, ask her a million questions, and find out how she manages to have a wildly successful team without being a teacher like everyone else. So I immediately started plotting an elaborate plan to create a podcast and interview Mary, secretly stealing all of her good ideas and building an unstoppable forensics force. What? No. (laughs) Just kidding. Of course, uh, since this summer, I've realized that many of the coaches in the WFCA, many that I greatly admire, are in fact out-of-the-building coaches, and I feel a lot better. That being said, I did ask for Mary's advice during this interview, and I've already implemented a couple of her suggestions with great success. So to all my fellow out-of-the-building coaches, keep listening. It's definitely worth it. Here is my conversation with Mary. Welcome, Mary Wacker, to Forensics Faces. Well, happy to be here. Um, You are who I consider to be a very successful forensics coach, but you're not a teacher at the school where you coach. So what is your day job? Well, my day job currently is uh, I'm the assistant to the dean of libraries at Marquette University. I have had that job, I think today might have been my eighth or ninth day. So this is a new new position for me, although I've been at Marquette University for six and a half years. Prior to this, I was serving um, as the associate director of Alpha Sigma Nu, the Jesuit Honor Society, which is a national organization that we ran as a small nonprofit on the Marquette campus. So those are my two most recent jobs that uh, were not teaching jobs. So how many students are in your program? Because you just told me the number, and now I'm freaking out. Uh, um, I'm freaking (laughs) out as well. This is an all-time high for us. This is my 22nd season at Brookfield East, and we have current roster. I'm thinking we may lose a few still because it's early January. Um, of 108 students. So how do you strike a balance between a day job and coming and coaching a team of that size? I don't have any other life. (laughs) I was thinking about that on the way here, Kurt. I leave my house about 7.15 in the morning, and I get home to my house on a good day about 8.15 in the evening, and it is work for the entire time. I drive straight from Marquette to Brookfield East where we pick up an evening session where we've already had an after-school practice going on that I I have a transition time between the two sessions that I run so that I get to see all of the students that were at least here on this day. But this is the first year where there's been a real conflict for me where I haven't been able to get here for the after-school practices. And right now it's still a transition I'm working on. It's very hard for me not to be more hands-on at this early part in the season. So how do you support a program of of this size? Because this may be your biggest, but you've been, you've had a lot of kids for a lot of years. We have. We've we've been over over 70 students for a number of years now. Um, When we got to the point where I couldn't see every student, I recruited a team of captains. And these aren't 
elected positions. The peers have nothing to do with these choices, and they're not always my most successful students. They are students I see in our practices having great responses, giving really good feedback, having what I call good ears. Um, we run our practices in a group environment. I don't do a sign up for 30 minutes one-on-one -on -one with me or anybody else. When you come to a practice at Brookfield East, you have to sit for a two-hour block of time, which gives you time to perform your piece and also to be an audience member to do, to do small group critique for your teammates. And out of that process, leaders emerge and they end up taking a room of their own when we break into small group and functioning as a, as a student coach. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's the only way you can run this many students through a program, in my estimation, because yeah. everybody needs to, when you, when you make a commitment to come to practice, you have to be heard. You have to demand to be heard. Um, I also find that I think students get better at their own piece through the process of critiquing others. It's one thing to stand up and, and be told by a coach, oh, you're going too fast. But when you're the person who is listening to the kid going too fast, you start to go, ah, that's why it's bad. That's why I have to fix what I do. And I think that has helped enhance the, the performance maturity of a lot of young students by seeing that they're not the only one doing dumb stuff or recognizing what a flaw looks like that may be a flaw that they themselves have. So anybody who has been in the WFCA for any number of years knows at least one of your daughters. <laughs> That's uh, probably true. Forensics seems to be a, a family affair for you. Was it your intention to get them involved, or was it, were they the ones motivated to do that? You know, it varies by daughter. I should probably fill you in on a little of the backstory. Um, I did forensics in high school. My brother was a varsity debater in high school. He's older than me. My younger sister did forensics in high school. And when I married my husband, I found out that my father-in-law was an NFL member himself. So this goes back really multi-generationally in the Wacker family. My daughters, when I started coaching at Brookfield East, were one and five and nine. So they grew up stuffing the critiques into the folders at the tournament and seeing the cool high school kids. And I think, I'd like to think, seeing me really enjoy something that I did. For me, going back to coaching as a mother of three young children was terribly inconvenient. The most inconvenient part-time job a person could have. But it also really felt like stepping back into a world that was mine before I was a wife, before I was a mother. Um, I was a theater and speech major in college. I did this in high school. I coached when I was a college student. So this was, this was really mine before I had all these other roles that I played in life. And I think my kids saw, I hope, the independence that that gave me. They enjoyed it. Um, my firstborn, Emily, embraced it right away. She wanted to do it. She's a firstborn. She wanted to do everything. She wanted to do everything well. And so she jumped right in. My second daughter, Carly, was all about forensics. She liked it. She was just not thrilled I was going to be her coach. She would have been real happy that there had been more of a, of a, of a mother-daughter separation in high school, although I think she came to embrace that as well. And ironically, she's coaching her own middle school team right now. And then my youngest, 
just couldn't wait until the day she could be on the team. She was the one that sat outside her sister's bedroom doors and memorized their pieces and set them at the breakfast table. And she actually probably was the most active of the three. And she's still coaching with me, which is kind of great. She's a senior in college now. That's very cool. I have to say that for a number of years now, I've been helping out with a state tournament. And for a number of years, you have brought extra kids from your team who aren't competing that day just to help us stuff ballots. And they are always so well-mannered, so helpful, so eager to, to be a part of the process no matter what it is. Is that something you strive to instill in them, or is that just a result of them being around Mary Wacker? Oh, it's all about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I could take credit for that. I have the best kids on my team. I, I'm sure other coaches feel like that, but I just have been very, very blessed to have dedicated, hardworking kids. As far as the, I always bring two extras to the state tournament. They would be my next ups on the team. They're my two alternates. So if somebody goes down with the flu or somebody has a an abscess tooth, which happened a few years ago, we have to throw in another entry. We have that person there. And I always tell those two, keep practicing, come along on the trip. And if you come and you don't compete, the tournament will put you to work. And I know some of that work can be kind of tedious and thankless, but they enjoy seeing behind the scenes. And a lot of times, it's not until a student graduates and comes back to judge or comes into a tab room as a coach on their own that they say, wow, I never had any idea how much work goes on outside of the student's frame of reference at a tournament. And I think there's a little bit overwhelming, wow, these people are all doing this work for us. And maybe that keeps them humble. <laughs> but they really do enjoy the process. And you know, when you have 75 or 80 or 90 kids on a team and you have to cut to a state team of 25 entries, you've got some pretty good dedicated kids that you're leaving home. If you had to explain forensics to a total stranger, what would you say? And I have had to do that. I think any coach has. Um, my short answer is usually I call it competitive public speaking, not necessarily debate, because people immediately will say, oh, you mean debate. And no, I don't really mean debate. If I um, meant debate, I would have <laughs> I said, would have said debate. debate. But it's, <laughs> it's one of those subtleties that we coaches very arrogantly assume everyone <laughs> knows that that's not what we're talking about. Um, if they're still interested in hearing more beyond competitive public speaking, and sometimes they'll nod blankly and that's enough, I will talk about how it runs the gamut of providing opportunities for students who read poetry or perform as solo actors to students who can write an original persuasive speech or are interested in current events. So you've already said that you did participate in forensics as a high school student. Can you give us the rundown of your forensics career as a competitor? I can. Actually, I was also a debater back in the days when you either were a negative debater or an affirmative debater, and I was the second negative, which was kind of the anchor spot in policy debate at the time. Um, and I had a pretty good record, but that was my secondary thing. Um, I started in middle school and did solo humorous. Betty at the baseball game was pretty good with that one. Um, and then I went on to high school where I did public address for a couple of years and then um, went back to solo acting, which was dramatic and terp then, which 
wasn't separated between humorous and dramatic in high school. Um, the interps weren't, but extemp was in those days. There was boys and girls extemp. Um, but I did solo acting, and even then, um, probably was a better coach than a performer because my very best friend in high school was a dramatic interp who qualified for NFL nationals, and I got to go along with her because I'd been coaching her. And uh, so that was my first that was my first foray into nationals. And actually, I just ran into her a couple of years ago, and she ran upstairs in her mother's house and said, "I have something for you," and gave me the little wooden NFL qualifier plaque that she won. <laughs> That's awesome. And so the, she said, I always thought you should have this. So I have that. That's one of my treasures. So how did you get started as a coach? I went to Marquette University, uh, started in, at, with a degree in theater and speech education. It was my goal to be a teacher. And uh, Michael Price, my college advisor and mentor and friend to this day, probably was more instrumental than anyone else in steering me into that path. He probably judged me in high school and knew that I was interested in this. So he gave me opportunities when I was a college freshman to say, you know, they're, they're looking for judges. I judged one act with him and I judged forensics tournaments. And somewhere in my first year of college, he said, university school is looking for a forensics coach. Why don't you give him a call? And so I did, and I coached at university school for a year. The next year, um, Whitefish Bay High School needed a coach, and he knew the theater woman there who wasn't going to do it anymore, and he called me and said, you should go over and apply for that job. So I coached at Whitefish Bay for a year. That was probably when I realized that that, that was something I really enjoyed, although those were small teams and kind of pick up in between experiences because I was like most college students involved in a million other things. So I was involved a little bit in coaching in college. Then I got away from it for a long time and moved out of state, got married, had kids. When I moved back to Wisconsin, it was just about the time that the WHSFA, the Wisconsin High School Forensic Association, had begun their judge training courses, their adjudication program. And again, Michael Price and at the time uh, WFCA's Mary Torgerson were the pilot teachers of that adjudication program. And once again, Mike Price gave me a call and said, Mary, you really should get certified. You really should judge. Okay, fine, but I have these little kids. Now just come and get certified. So I went through the very first certification course taught by Mike Price and Mary Torgerson in the company of the people who'd been my college professors and mentors and forensics judges, John Lewinsky and Jim Seatman, and I think Mike Price had his daughter in that class, and also in that, that first training class was an English teacher from Brookfield East High School. And I thought, oh great, I'm, I'm living in Brookfield. I should give this woman a, my phone number. She could call me to judge. And she called me a couple days after the session and said, we really need a coach. The head coach quit. I was just going to be the assistant coach. I've never been to a forensics tournament in my life. I don't know what I'm doing. And I had an 11-month-old baby and two other little girls and said, yeah, "Can I? could I just volunteer? <laughs> she said, no, no, we really need a coach. And so that was 1991, and that was my first year coaching at Brookfield East. We had about 12 angry, talented 
kids who felt they were underappreciated in the building and really wanted to have a good forensics program and were so good, what was I going to do about it? And we took kids to nationals that year and every year since. And I'm, I'm actually still close with those, those very first kids from the early 90s. One is, a, one is an English teacher in Illinois. One is the head of pediatrics at Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, one's still in theater, one went to the Peace Corps and is now working for the Peace Corps. One's gone back to Australia, where he was from. <laughs> Another goal of this program is to take back the curtain on the WFCA and how it works in an official capacity. And I know I've, I've shared with you before, too, there are lots of things about the WFCA before I was a coach. I, just, I didn't know. I don't know how things run. And So you are an official part of the WFCA. Right. I was actually... Um, Oh, I've, I've worn several hats. I was chair of program assistance for a while. Um, I'm currently the chair of the tournament practices and procedures committee. I've also chaired the category committee in between those two. And I did serve a cycle as president-elect president and past president oh, around 2000, 2001, somewhere in that area. So what don't we know about how the WFCA runs? What you don't know is how appreciated all the coaches in the state are by that executive board. I think there is a real respect and concern that coaches be pulled together, that we really do talk about the problems of of small teams and young coaches who don't have support in their buildings and the incredible mountain it is to climb to retain funding and keep students engaged and involved. I do think sometimes it looks like people who don't understand those needs. And those needs are really paramount in our thoughts more often than I think the rank and file coach would would believe. I also think there's there's a lot less mystery involved in the executive board of the WFCA than than others would think. We're all overworked. We all put in, you know, on top of all of these days that we put in, it's a few extra meetings a year. We're we're some pretty incredible people really focus on outside of their own teams what can make the organization stronger, better. What are the challenges we're facing and how can we How can we work through them to make this a stronger organization? In the time that I have been a coach, forensics in Wisconsin has changed tremendously from a time when virtually every school had a forensics team to now a time when fewer and fewer do. From 22 years ago, when I was one of very, very few coaches who didn't teach in the high school where where she coached, to nowadays where I see many, many schools that are coached by parents by uh, former competitors who don't work in their high school or or just people like me who've hung around for a really long time that that's a particular challenge we've automated we've gone to online presences with our our results and our invitations and we've we've gone from hand scheduling tournaments to having programs that do it in those 22 years and it seems ridiculous that we did it the other way but imagine the time that that took um, because tournaments were just as big then as they are now as the chair of tpp what do you do At this time of year, when we're not really in tournaments, we get the occasional email from a coach saying, we want to use 
this thing I found online, or I have two girls that want to do this play, but one is a guy character. Is this going to be legal or illegal? I want to do a, a speech, you know, juggling swords. Is, is, are they going to be disqualified because the swords are weapons? So a lot of times it's, if we do this, are we within the rules? During the tournament season, each tournament will have a tournament practices and procedures committee appointed by their, their host school in case rule violations come up. And hopefully when they do come up, they are reported back to me so that I can share them with our committee. So it's really just an in case there's a problem situation. At the state tournament, we will be the, arbi the arbiters. This committee will arbitrate any kind of rule violations that are brought up and make a, make a decision. If somebody does contact you with a question, what's the process for determining whether it is or is not legal? Nine times out of ten, it's something that it's just, I can read the rule and, and it doesn't require any kind of deliberation. If it's, a, if it's a deliberative question or something that's really a confounding or not obvious, then I'll email it out to the committee, get everybody's opinion, and we'll hopefully come to a consensus that we can share with that coach. Currently, one of the things I think we have to talk about is how do we incorporate the ability to use internet material in, in, in this, in, we're in 2012 now, it's time we have, a, we have a policy about that when our published and printed rule is, is a little bit archaic. So we're gonna take a look at that. I will let you know that you have already been mentioned in a previous interview <laughs> um, uh -oh. because, and it was me who brought you up. Uh, because I was in a room once when you said that forensics is the most collegiate thing a high school student can do. And I, I found that to be just a really, a really great thing to take with me, and so I have carried it with me. But can you elaborate on that? I can, and I, I can't take credit for that. That was uh, said to me by Tyler Beatty, one of my former students who is now writing musicals in New York. He also coached his own team after he graduated from college. But when he and I talked about this, because we ran a little summer camp at Brookfield East for the last several years, and he said, you have to tell parents who, we, I think that the initial discussion we had was, what do we do with parents who say, can I come to the tournaments and watch? Um, because I'm not a big fan of parents coming to the tournament and watching. I think it is unnerving to many students. In the same way it would be unnerving if I walked in and watched a round that one of my students competed in. I think that would be really off-putting. But parents don't know that because parents have spent their lifetime going to the soccer game, sitting in the volleyball stands, attending the concerts, waiting outside the solo and ensemble room, being a part of every extracurricular experience their students have had in a very supportive, very positive way that has been good parenting. So a parent will say, oh, I should, can I come to the state tournament and watch? Or can I come to the tournament and watch? And the best way to describe it, I found, was Tyler's way, which is to say, this is a time when your son or your daughter takes a leap toward maturity, goes off for the day, has an experience where they are on their own, and will come home and tell you about it, and probably what you'll get is some of the highs, some of the lows, but you won't have been walking side by side through the experience. And that's what college feels like. Parents generally get the worst things that happened and the best things that happened, and there's a lot we don't ever hear. And that's fine, because that's a step toward becoming an independent adult. 
And I do think forensics does provide that. And I think there's a lot of lessons in forensics that at their very core are adult training. I believe I've heard you say before that, I mean, your program, even at 108 students, doesn't get more funding just because you're bigger. <laughs> you're right about I, that. I, I was pretty sure I'd heard that. Um, so how do you keep a program of your size above water, and what advice can you give to people who, I mean, I think we're probably all in the same boat that way, which is you have the money you have, and then you have the needs that you have, and a lot of times they don't go together. Right. I'm, I'm pretty ambitious about seeking funding wherever I can, and I try not to make that be on the backs of students who can't afford it. To be perfectly honest with you, if it cost what it costs now to have been in forensics in 1975 when I was, I would have been the kid who wasn't in, couldn't have afforded it. So it has always been my philosophy that no kid will ever be excluded from my team because they can't afford a suit, they can't afford the overnight fee, they can't afford to go to nationals. That being said, it's been eight or nine years since I've had an increase in my unit budget at school, and my unit budget pays for entry fees, judges, some books and supplies that I purchase every year. And I have a, a, by the standard of other schools, I think I have a fairly generous unit budget, but I also have a very ambitious growing team. And it's gotten to the point where we have, we used to be able to get through the year great and any fundraising that we did was for the extras video camera a mac computer so we could commit to video some of the the performances that we did extra books things like that Um, now the fundraising that we do goes directly to finishing our season paying our last judges and hopefully making a dent in our national tournament costs i believe my role in the whole funding game is that i'm a lobbyist And when I go to my administrator or my school board, I'm not there to give ground and say whatever they can give me is okay. I am there to fight for what I believe I need. And I think my administrators would probably tell you that they're aware of that. (laughs) I, I ask for a lot. I expect a lot from my students. I expect to be supported by my school. What I haven't asked for is ever is an increase in my own rate of pay, which is a the same $3,200 a year that I've gotten since 1991 because that's been a contracted amount. So I had 12 kids in 1991 and I'm making the same amount with a, a significant increase in enrollment. How has forensics impacted your life? Oh, it's enriched my life tremendously. It's given me some of my best friends. and that, And I don't mean just my students, and I don't mean just my colleagues, I mean everybody in the community of forensics is, whether we agree or disagree about things, there's such a passion that the people that do this activity have that I don't see in a lot of other walks of life, I don't see in a lot of other activities. My colleagues in the coaching community are some of the most competent adults I have ever worked with. If you've ever seen a tournament start and seen all hands on deck to mark the ads and drops and get the, the copies out and make sure every round begins and you know that every one of your colleagues can be trusted to figure out what they have to do and you watch a tab room in motion at the time that the power rounds are going out and you see how invested everybody is in doing this well and doing it right and the only reason they're doing it is to give these kids the platform and the opportunity to be better than they were 
because nobody's getting rich in that tab room and nobody's really getting a lot of personal praise within their school for giving up Saturday after Saturday. I really have to be so impressed with a group of adults like that. And so impressed that, that when I spend a Saturday in the summer doing something out in the world, the non-forensics world, I, there are times that I really wish that I was back in, at a tournament on a Saturday. I don't think there's a more satisfying way to spend a Saturday. I'm enriched. I've, I've told the students year after year, I fully expect that when someday when I'm sitting in a nursing home, I will have lots of people who come and read to me. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite forensics memory? Oh, that's like saying who's your favorite child. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten to that question yet, but since you're jumping ahead. Well, no. No. <laughs> and, and I guess my answer when I say who's my favorite child, I say if, if you're a successful parent, they all think in their hearts that it's really them. Um, and I, I, gosh, there are so many, there are memories of spectacular success, but then there are some, some really um, special other memories. And some of them make me pretty emotional. One that, that somehow is jumping into my mind right now, and it goes back to that point at which I realized I couldn't coach all these kids myself. And I had to do a lot of managing. I had to do the paperwork. I had to pay the bills and order the buses. And if I didn't do that, then 50 or 60 kids didn't get to compete. And so maybe that had to be okay, even though I would rather be sitting in a room listening to a practice and hearing awesome pros. There was a tournament at which my team president was in poetry or prose, and there had been an error in tabulation, and she got left out of the final round. And she was a senior, and she looked at it afterwards, and she caught, you know, as students do, they catch the mistakes right away. And she pulled me aside and said, don't say anything about this, because if I had gotten in, her teammate would not have gotten in. And she said it was so important to her to do well today. And I worked with her, and I was so proud of her that I, I'm happier that it happened to her than if I had been in the final. That's a pretty, um, it's, I can still see it. It was awesome. And I think that's something that as coaches, you immediately recognize. That feeling of seeing somebody else succeed is so much greater. But to, he, to have that next level of having instilled the importance in a student to have that feeling. It wow. was awesome. It was awesome. I took a look back recently at um, some of the scholarship recipients we've had, and I'm pretty proud to say there are several coaches among that group, several, that I'm very proud of. I mean, when I go name by name through the kids who the WFCA has honored with that senior scholarship, I can tell you that almost without exception, every student has given back tenfold to my program and to forensics what forensics gave to them. So that's pretty amazing. And I really do think you build a culture not because the coach, I like to think I've had a part in this, but the students have to buy in to the culture, and the students have to leave that legacy to the next students who come up because all you need is a couple years where kids really don't care or they take advantage or they get a little arrogant about a reputation that they themselves didn't earn, and that's gone because the life cycle of a high school memory is four years. But 
that I had leaders on this team that go back years now who said to the kids coming up, what are you going to do when we're gone? And said to each other as seniors, what legacy are you going to leave? Who are you going to pull up the way somebody pulled you up? That's what changed. And when that starts to happen as a coach, sometimes the best thing you can do is stand back and facilitate and encourage. So those are your favorite memories. What would you consider to be your greatest forensics accomplishment? My greatest forensics accomplishment. You know, I have to say, it would be that I have students who became coaches. Tyler Beatty, Ann Ferkovich, Kelsey Palmer, Sean Matson, Heidi and Emily Wacker, Carly Wacker, actually. And I'm sure there are many others that I'm not, not even thinking of off the top of my head. Students have become teachers. Students have become coaches. Because something happened in their lives that was significant, significant enough that they want to make sure that somebody else gets that experience. I have tremendous respect for Deb Wiretras, who is really one of my, she's not old enough to be my mentor, but she certainly is one of my models. And it profoundly moves me every year when she stands up, typically at her award ceremony, and says, which one of you out in this audience are going to make this happen for somebody else who's going to become a coach because many coaches are former competitors if competitors aren't given that challenge that if they don't continue this activity goes away if it meant something to you pay it forward that's how forensics perpetuates nothing to me would be a greater accomplishment than thinking i pushed that process along maybe to the next generation what do you think of the forensics community in wisconsin I think it's it's dynamic, and I think it's filled with caring people, and I think it could be better than it is, and it could be stronger and more cohesive than it is, but I think if I compare it to what I know, what little I know of other states and other programs, I think we have an awful lot to be proud of here in Wisconsin. What is Farago? Farago is a program of literature put together on a common theme. Something unexpected makes a good Farrago. Farrago's about love and death and life. Really kind of bore me. But what is it about death? Is it the end of the road? That's a good Farrago. What is it about love? Is it unexpected twists of the heart? You know, there are so many ways to dig deeper and deeper. And that's much more interesting than saying childhood or love or death or dogs. (laughs) (laughs) What is the difference between interp and acting? In your mind, again, there's no right in. (laughs) Um, Less and less. I don't know that I'm as wrapped up in what the difference is. I like to forget that I'm watching somebody do something in either case. I want to be transported by a story. Um, When you're doing acting, you get to use more tools to transport me. When you're doing interp, you're limited by voice, pace, less visual and more, more auditory. But in either case, I should forget that you're doing one or the other, and I should just be 
be transported. I think the NFL used to have a rule that said good interp is identified by uh, a performance that will transport you to another time and place. And I've never heard a better description of what a good interp piece should do. What is your favorite category to judge? Love storytelling. Um, I love a good oratory round. Um, I love duo. I, I think duo is can be funny, can be sad, can be a combination, can be incredibly creative. Pick one of those and tell me what makes a competitor great in that category. All right, duo. I think a great competitor in duo first is a good, solid solo performer. I don't think it's a thing a beginner does well. Um, you have to learn what you do your own you have to have physical control you have to know your vocal range you have to know how to use all the tools that you possess before you can share those it's almost like you have to mature as a person before you can be in a relationship because there's somebody else to deal with you also have to be able to forgive yourself mistakes because a duo partner who punishes herself or himself because they screwed up and disappointed the teammate can can become fearful. Um, you also have to forgive your partner. So if you're a little too domineering, not going to work. But but the collaboration that happens, it's better than group discussion. It's that that gatekeeping, the give and the take, and the being open to the creative process of somebody else. I think it's a really high. It's it's a very highly evolved talent. What is your biggest dream? Oh my biggest dream does it have to be about forensics no <laughs> my biggest dream is that someday i'm gonna write a great novel that's what i would like to do next what advice do you have for forensic students today uh, my advice for forensic students today is and this goes beyond forensics do what you love do things because you love them and figure out what they are high school students today bear so many burdens that I didn't bear a generation ago. Um, The academic fears, the having to be the best, the where am I going to go to college, not even what am I going to do with my life, but where am I going to go to college, um, consumes so much of of a student's brain and energy. Um, I see students being not terribly healthy about getting enough sleep, um, eating properly, um, and and respecting their need to play and enjoy. I think a forensic student who can use forensics as the vehicle to explore who they are, what they believe, how how to enjoy risk taking and and falling down and getting back up again is okay. Meeting people that honestly you will you will run into for the rest of your life. I think it's a little microcosm of, of uh, all those things that are great about what's coming in adulthood and life. And, and when a student can embrace all of that and not worry about, I got to be the best, or I can't find a piece that I like, or you know, I don't know how to fit this into my life, then you have to reassess whether this is a good thing. 10, 15 years ago, I used to have to say, you know, come on, spend a little time working on this. And now I spend time saying to students, take the day off. Don't worry about this. It's fine the way it is. Just trust yourself. That's, that concerns me 
about a generation of students and and I hope that I hope that forensics doesn't get ruined into something that you can if you're not the best you can't enjoy it because I think a lot of people enjoyed not being the best I, I will just say I own one trophy from the 70s I have a third place public address state tournament and I still have it and it's got a man on top because they all did that I didn't win a lot of trophies but I made lifelong friends and I was ignited with the possibility of what could be through this activity. It's not gonna be about the trophies and students generally don't get this until somewhere along their senior season. That even though my coach has been saying this to me all along, it is about the journey. It is the bus rides that you remember and the kids you met in practice and the funny, ridiculous things that got said and the inside jokes and the goofy t-shirt you had and, and the, the place you went to dinner together as a team and the banquet at the end of the year and things your parents will never get and your coach may not always even know. But those are the memories you take away. And those, I think, I don't know a lot of students that wouldn't trade all their trophies for that. Tom Shalmo was one of our students very active in radio, very successful. And he won a scholarship from the WFCA in his senior year. And Ron Steinhorst, uh, who the scholarship was named after, read a little, you know, the little bio that they read about the scholarship recipient. And it was lovely. And Tom, who had had two straight years of never losing a tournament except state, came back with his plaque and his check, sat down next to me and said, I would give back every trophy I ever won to hear him read that again. <laughs> and I think that there's something to that. I mean, it's not really about the awards. It's about having, having had a well-lived experience in forensics that stays with students. All right, Mary. Each week, we try to outsmart our guest in our game. It's called FaceTime. This is how it works. I have 20 questions inspired by a forensics category. You have 90 seconds, that's 75 seconds with a 15 second grace period, <laughs> to answer as many questions as you can. Your topic this week is based on group discussion, affectionately referred to as group disco. Now the group part sounded dull, so I'm choosing to focus on the disco part. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you 20 questions about the disco era, the music, the culture, and the politics, and your final score will be printed on a FaceTime plaque for you to show off to family and friends. Great. Your 90 seconds begins when I finish reading the first question. Ready? Yes. Gloria Gaynor sang this disco anthem that instructed her expo to turn around now, you're not welcome anymore. I will survive. Correct. In 1973, Arab nations placed an embargo on what export to the Western Hemisphere? Gasoline. Oil. Oil, yeah. John Travolta starred in the disco-driven movie Blank in 1977. Saturday Night Fever. Yes. In answer to the liberating miniskirts, some women of the disco era decided to cover up with what popular fashion? Maxi. Maxi, Maxi skirts? Dress, yeah. Uh, the Bee Gees scored with their hits Stayin' Alive and Night Blank. Uh, fever. This hot stuff singer was nicknamed the Disco Diva. Oh, I see her face. Oh, oh I'm going to kick myself for this one. Can I pass? Yep, Donna Summer. A deep voice and heavy frame gave this disco era singer the Barry White. walrus of love. Barry White. <laughs> By 1975, pants that flared at the ankle were commonly known as... Uh, bell bottoms. 
1974, President Nixon was embroiled in the blank scandal. Watergate. Deborah Winger and Jeff Goldblum starred in the 1978 film Thank God It's Blank. Friday? Yeah. Everyone knows Patti LaBelle, but can you name the band she headlined prior to her solo career? Uh, Chic? No. Patti LaBelle. Patti LaBelle. Oh, I'm going to pass. It's just called LaBelle. Linda Carter played the title character on this superhero Wonder Woman. Yep. This musical about auditioning for a musical won the Pulitzer Prize in 1976. Uh, I'm singing the songs. Uh, For God's sake. Um... I, see, I want to say the song, and I, the song with the words that I can't say. Chorus line. Of course. That's it. And that was 90 seconds. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten questions correct. And we didn't even get to all of them. Oh, gosh. I need to know how other coaches did. I'm a little competitive <laughs> this way. You'll just have to listen and find out. <laughs> Thank you very much for giving your time and for being a guest on Forensics Faces. I it was it. my pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for joining us for Forensics Faces. Special thanks to this week's Forensics Face, Mary Wacker. Check out exclusive content like Mary's must-do list on the Forensics Faces blog at ForensicsFaces.com. Get Forensics Faces updates on Twitter by following at Forensics Faces. Forensics Faces is recorded and edited by Kurt Graves. Our theme song is by Kate Marshall. FaceTime prizes are furnished by Distinctive Images. Learn more at distinctiveimages.net. Forensics Faces is produced with the support of the WFCA, developing communication skills vital for a lifetime of effective participation in society. Find out more at wfcaforensics.org.